This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 beer and brewing enthusiasts worldwide. The AHA publishes Zymergy Magazine, hosts the National Homebrew Competition and Homebrew Con, and equips members with brewing tips, proven recipes, and money-saving deals on beer, food, and brewing supplies. Founded in 1978, the AHA remains true to founder Charlie Papazian's timeless advice, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. Celebrate beer and homebrewing with the AHA at Homebrew brewersassociation.org. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Firestone Walker Barrel Works Director and Brand Manager, Jeffers Richardson. Welcome to the podcast, Jeffers. Hey, good to be here. Love to have you here in Fort Collins, and we are here at uh, the uh, world headquarters. I know, it feels very worldly here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is where all of our magic happens. I've been to where your magic happens a number of times now. Yes, you have. Uh, at least at least five or six times. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to jump in here. Um, yeah, I, I saw you in June at Invitational. Um, the Firestone Walker Invitational Beer right. Festival. Uh, what did you think? You know, that's my third year attending the Firestone Lucky Walker you. Invitational Beer Festival. Um, you know, after the first year... My partner, John, and I, who both went, looked at each other and said that that festival has a spot on our calendar every year from here until they stop putting the festival. (laughs) It, um, you know, we go to a lot of festivals and we see a lot of beer and, uh, you know, and we have, you know, you know, there are endless relationships and friends in the, in the beer industry. And, you know, we try to, to give everybody a fair shake and spend time with, with all of our friends. Um, the Firestone Walker Invitational is singular in its approach to hospitality for brewers for media um, and in its approach of you know towards quality that idea of building this experience that integrates local food purveyors that you know integrates uh, fantastic brewers world-class brewers innovative brewers brings them in from around the world and pulls them together. I mean, there is a reason the brewers come to that festival year after year whenever they have the invitation. And there's a reason that a, a number of my brewer friends directly lobby everyone that they know at, at Firestone oh, Walker I, 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 for I an invitation you, I, <laughs> to that festival. I get a lot of lobbies, and luckily I get to say, not my decision. Um, but, did, whose decision is it out there? I mean, because I know a lot of ultimately, brewers know ultimately, that. it's uh, Matt Brendelson, our brewmaster. Yeah, yeah. It's his event. He created this. Uh, so Matt's going to get that flood of boxes. Yeah, exactly. Of beer. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so when people call me and say, "How do I get in?" It's like, well, you know, um, get to know Matt. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, it really is about personal relationships because the very first year that that came out, he literally went through his Rolodex. Right. Anybody for those of people who know what a Rolodex is. Um, he went through You're his showing your age, Jeff. Yes, I am. It's uh, his mailing list, and you know, called up people he knew and who he thought would it would be, you know, would be he'd be comfortable inviting people he had a relationship right. with, right. and and so that kind of philosophy and that culture is 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 continued. And then the people who show up, you know, the the people who come to the festival, 
same thing. You know, we we just don't have issues. It's just one of these things where you walk away. I've been doing this what since 2012. I, I was as I was telling you earlier. I I've always thought that okay, this is the year that I'm going to say last year was better, and I never get there. It really is one of those things where you kind of walk away just high as a kite from it. It's like going to Woodstock over and over again. It's um, you know, and it really is even from the Brewers' perspective. And and that, you know, I don't want to harp on this too no, long. No, but you know, from from the the Friday night party, you know, in the <laughs> in the Brewers' camp to. Saturday night hangout sessions, you know, the festival is just, just, you know, the actual tasting session, you know, for consumer and ticket buyers is only, you know, one part of the overall weekend from a brewer's perspective. And, you know, for us being able to hang out with those people that we know and love and respect and do it in this kind of informal way at this one time of the year, that's always, I mean, it just, it becomes that thing. And, you know, it was so fun this year to see, you know, uh, Kim Jordan and Dick Cantwell. Yeah, you know, in the, their sprint. <laughs> in their sprinter van <laughs> camping, you know, at the, yeah. the Firestone and, Walker Invitation. Like, that is and, how bizarre Not, not just is, camping, you know? but in a rodeo yeah. arena. Yes. Arena That was cr- that was right, great. Right. And if you haven't <laughs> if you haven't seen the hospitality of the Rare Barrel guys pull out uh, and others on that Friday night, I mean, I you know, I know a few people that go to the, the, uh, the festival have a fantastic time, but... Even the brewers geek out on uh, on the party that happens yes. behind the scenes. So, yep, yep. Um, you know, and then uh, the other thing that I guess nobody really knows out there is that once the party is over, once the the festival is over, all the leftover beer that the, the folks don't drink ends up at a party for the brewers later yes. that night. No, and it, I mean, it you know, you, you haven't lived until you've had like you know self serve uh, barrel aged stouts of of the rarest kind from the hottest breweries in the country just sitting out there on a draft trailer for all the brewers to, you know, to drink from. So damn, I missed all on that. No, man, actually man. I, I did. It's, it, uh, it's, it's, you were just drinking the Trumer pills. Yeah. And so, you know, that was that. <laughs> At some point I think I was just drinking water, but, uh, fair enough. But, fair uh, enough. yeah, I probably should have drunk a little bit more of that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, Firestone Walker and Barrel Works. You know, that that is your thing. Now, you know, it hasn't always been your thing. You've had a long and storied career. And uh, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but, you know, you were actually uh, a head brewer uh, before Brindleton for this whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, we, we um, I, I was, uh, let's see, where to start here? Um, so, yeah, I was working for a, a, a Bay Area uh craft brewery ch- chain at the time called the Tide House. I had three operations and I was overseeing all of that. I got a call one day and I, one time I was describing somebody like I was on a cell phone, but this was pre-cell phone. So um, I got a landline call from an a English bloke named David Walker and he told me his project, that they were part of a winery, that they wanted to do something with barrels. And I just, I don't know, I was just sort of intrigued by it. And after about a month of, of courtship, um, jumped on board and we built a brew house out of literally duct tape and bailing wire. I mean, it was that seriously, it was, it was that yeah. crude. And I mean, I, 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 I remember the first time I saw the equipment that they had purchased without uh, talking to me. I mean, I think they picked it up at like a, at a flea market in LA and uh, but anyway, we made it work. If and only they sold brewing equipment at flea markets back then. I, I really, honestly, I think they probably did. At this case, yeah. you should. I, I, there's no way to describe this because it was equipment that was not designed to make beer, and yet we made beer off of it, and we we did a decent job of it. 
And for five years, we did that until, uh, in fact, we built, uh, we were going to expand into a brewery. This kind of leads up to the Barrel Works, is uh, down the road, we uh, built a building uh, to move into, to expand into. At that point, I think we were probably making about 4,000 barrels a year, uh, which wasn't that much uh, for us, although it was, and we made 800 barrels our first year. But anyway... We uh, were going to move into it, and there were some issues. Uh, it turns out we couldn't use the uh, the wastewater system, so that, that pretty much kills your operation there. So we stuck in our existing situation on a vineyard uh, surrounded by a couple of oil derricks with a beautiful view of a 6,000-foot mountain. It was really it was very bucolic uh, atmosphere. But we um, ended up purchasing uh, a brew house up in Paso, and we moved everything up there, and that you know that's that's kind of all she wrote. That that that's where Matt came on board. At this point, I had this. I followed a. Uh, I tend to be a very passionate person. I followed a girl to Chico, and I ended up brewing for Sierra Nevada. But meanwhile, um, you know, exit Jeffers, enter Matt, and you know that's been an incredible story. So uh, that was the main production, and. Well, at least 40 GABF medals since then. Something, yeah. Something like that. Um, but then in 2012, we decided to go back to that facility which we had built that was supposed to be our new brew house and opened up the Barrel Works. And uh, uh, basically, uh, I came back on board. I had literally taken some time off of brewing and got into olive oil, but that's a whole other story. Um, and teamed up with a guy named Jim Crooks. And we built the brew, uh, the Barrel Works. So 2012, the, you know, what, what was the impetus for Firestone Walker to jump into the sour beer arena at that point? So we were, we were toying with it. Basically, uh, Jim uh, was messing around. Toying and, with it, like, you know, there's toying not with official. it. And then there's the, we have like, you know, 20,000 square feet. No, in so this, toying with in it this literally means warehouse and we're going to hire multiple people. And uh, yeah, yeah, well, toying with it is it's contraband. <clears throat> okay, is that okay. is that Jim is in a back room somewhere away from production, uh, messing with wild yeast somewhat close to our production facility. <laughs> um, but and, not and Matt it. was like, get that stuff. No, Matt was Matt was on board that. What, okay. who, the people who didn't know were the yeah. uh, were was uh, Adam Firestone and David Walker, the namesakes. Oh, okay. Um, it literally came down to a point. It was a game of cat and mouse, keeping yeah. that stuff far away. Eventually, it was caught, and at one <laughs> point, um, Adam Firestone literally had that stuff out on the curb, ready to pour it down the drain. He came from the wine background, so the yeah, idea of having yeah. Brett. And lactobacillus anywhere near a facility was actual, you know, it was just, um, it was Armageddon to him. Right. So he was, I mean, literally ready to pour it out the drain, down the drain. And David came in and talked him off the ledge. David had just been on a trip with Matt to uh, Belgium, had visited Cantillon, Bone, etc. And and, he, and and David could see something, you know, he saw like, you know yeah. what, there's something here. And he talked him off the ledge, but at that point, the decision was, okay, get it the hell away from the production facility. And so this was probably, I don't know, maybe 2010, yeah. 2011. And so the discussion was, what are we going to do? We maybe, This is something we should pursue, not pour down the drain, um, but where are we going to do this? And it was just obvious at that point. It's like, hey, we have this facility that we've never really used. It's now a bonded wine warehouse. 
It was supposed to be a brewery. And, um, uh, you know, it, it goes back to our origins. This is where we brewed for the first five, or five years of our, our existence. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's move this down there. It's 86 miles away from the brewery, downwind. And uh, we can run amok down there and, you know, let the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the in- inmates run the asylum. And um, so that's what happened. So basically, we had this facility in 2012 full of uh, a bunch of boxes of wine. And it took a while to get them out of there. But we finally uh, told them, uh, literally, it came down to a, a, an announcement on email to the winemakers on this date, Britannomyces will enter the building. <laughs> and by that weekend, uh, seriously, they were gone. It was uh, because we, because yeah, uh, this yeah, was our third attempt. Yeah. Two attempts, they just were, you know, they didn't take it seriously. And then when they realized the plague was arriving, <laughs> then they, they got out pretty quickly. Fair enough, fair enough. So what was the what was the creative direction then? I mean, you know, were you just given uh, carte blanche to make some beer or... Is there a, a point of view behind Firestone Walker's approach to, to making well, acidic beer? All the above. I mean, the Firestone Walker culture and the approach is always to do something. I mean, we've always been about uh, blending. We've always been about balance. And we've always been about barrels. I mean, our uh, when I was there in 96, our very first beers were fermented in barrels. So that that has always carried along with, with, with Firestone Walker. Um but yeah, in, in a way, you know, David Walker put this very, uh, I thought, eloquently and, 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 and in a funny way. He said, you know, we put Jim and Jeffers in a Petri dish and we, 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 we looked to see what would grow. And, and that's exactly what they did. They basically threw us together and Jim had been messing around with this stuff. So initially we were working with some beers that he had been working on and we, and we, we, we grew them up a little bit. But what eventually took place was we started to collaborate, kind of like songwriters, if you will, on on different beers, just brainstorming uh, different ideas, and then coming up with some 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 beers of that, and then and tasting it, and then deciding whether that was something we wanted to to uh, to blend together and make a beer, and that so that's kind of how we've gone forward. Is is Jim. Uh, runs the barrel room and Jim is our mad scientist and he doesn't like the word mad but he's you know he's he's got that creative edge and, and and so do I so I mean I one of our beers came up on our my one hour commute to work you know I was stuck in traffic and I just started thinking about some things that I wanted to work on and I came and I said hey I've got this idea and then we would start riffing on it or he would come and say hey you know what the guy from the pumpkin uh, patch called me up the day after Halloween and says, I got all these pumpkins. I hear maybe you could use them. And, 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 and I'm saying, well, you know, Matt doesn't want to do pumpkin beers. And he's like, I want to do a pumpkin beer. Okay. No pumpkin spices. And so we just started riffing and eventually we would come up with an idea and the beer, you know, Matt would say, what do you mean you're doing a pumpkin beer? And then we taste it and go, okay, proceed. <laughs> and, and so it was just, it was just this really kind of, it is a padded room in many ways. We, we 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 communicate a lot, and we uh, we talk about different ideas, and one idea leads to another, and another, and another, and we eventually make a beer, and then we taste it, and then we, at the end of the day, we we're blenders at heart, and so we will make sure that the beer is where we, where we want it to be. What maybe we, it's a beer we like, but it doesn't have enough oak character, so we'll bring in something that has a lot of oak character, or something that we want more acidity, or 
or less acidity. So that's kind of how it works. It's a, I mean, it really is kind of a, uh, it's a very creative environment. Now you all have embarked on some, you know, some interesting and some crazy experiments and you are still kind of, you know, if, if we look at it, you know, there is not necessarily, you know, a, a core continuity in the over in the entire program you are still in a in a pretty broad space right now and and i say that not in a critical way but in a you know if you look at some other sour beer makers especially those in you know in belgium and whatnot they have honed in on exactly what works for them and you know what they produce it you know is produced but it's produced a pro across a rather narrow range um, you all are still doing everything from, you know, Berliner, fruited Berliner Weiss experiments, you know, based experiments to, uh, you know, Reginald Brett, this 10 percent, you know, big, you know, barrel aged and then soured, you know, you know a, kind of our, our, Manhatt- our Manhattan cocktail, Your Manhattan co- you know, and so the, the range of what you're doing right now in sour beer is, is still rather broad. Um, yeah. How, how do you find a thread of continuity through that? Well, I mean, I, I think you know, no matter how broad it is, I mean, by a, a Belgian tradition or even a European tradition, which are more steeped in, in, in those traditions, whether it's German lager or, or a goose, um, and we don't pretend to ever uh, mimic that. We're inspired by it, and we might make something uh, slightly different. And I think that is part of the North American experience in craft, is that, you know, when I started in craft... We were all trying to mimic English uh, bitters and pale ales, but we, you know, we didn't. We didn't. We created our own style. We created the American pale ale. I mean, think, uh, think what what Sierra Nevada created. I mean, that is the most iconic pale ale that I can think of. Uh, I mean, we created a version of that. Many breweries created a version. So, so eventually, you know, we have room to kind of experiment because that's the American way. I think, you know, we do things boldly. We push the envelope on the borders of what's acceptable, and then we eventually kind of come back to what that is, and we and we solidify that. Or, uh, um, and I think we do that a bit with Barrel Works. Is we're always experimenting, but we have a general idea. As is, is, is we do look to Belgium to what we think of as this is a classic goods. This is a beer that we're going to blend four year old with two year old beer. We're not going to call it a goods because out of out of respect for the goods producers. But this is our our style, our our um, our representation in 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 that particular style of beer. We just won't call it that. And then then might, we might take from that. We might go. Now, what if we were to add uh, a lala berries to this? Um, and and so that so that so it's constantly that. And it's funny. This 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 whole idea is is, is I'm my wife is is Arabic. And we eat a lot of Arabic food, and and I'm from California, and she'll sit there and produce a hummus, and I'll sit there like, what if we were to add this spice? And she'll say, yeah, uh, that's great, but don't call it hummus. And so it's, it's similarly, is sure. we have these sure. t- these standards, these 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 centuries old or at least decades old standards in in Belgium and in North America, we've we don't have those traditions. We have a license to kind of experiment. We we riff on these things, and and so it's okay for them to say, yeah, that's great, but it's not a pilsner, because you dry hopped it. But you know what? The end result is still pretty fantastic. So we're just going to keep doing what we do. We don't have a Reinheitsgebot, um, and so we we have this. I think we have this great license to 
to to move and go and, and go places. And sometimes we go to some pretty ridiculous places, but eventually it comes back. You know, we'll bring it back into something that's acceptable to something we want to do and what people are willing to drink. I think that's a that's an interesting sentiment, and I and I enjoy that. Um, my global perspective on the American influence on beer was impacted significantly last week. I uh, was I flew over to Geneva, Switzerland, and spent uh, a week in the Jura region of France. Sounds terrible. It's awful. It's awful. Um, guest of the the Comte Cheesemakers uh, oh, Association. God. One of the interesting pieces that came out of that we were in Lisan outside of Saint Claude, and you know. Um, and went to a small brewery, Brasserie de Lison, and the the brewer Emile was incredibly excited to pour for me his APA, and he made sure that he called it an APA because this is his American pale ale, huh. and it was the coolest but weirdest and also awesome thing to you know to be there in France. In you know, in this uh, you know, uh, an area that's not known for beer at all, and to taste this beer that he had made because it tastes like an American pale ale. And uh, now I'm going to ask you: so, uh, what kind of hops was he using? That to uh, I mean, usually it's the hops that sort of sign uh, the signature for the American uh, pale ale. He he was a big fan of Amarillo hops. Okay, so he was using new hops. Oh, he was using Pacific Northwest He wasn't Northwest using hops. the three C's. No, no, you know, he was he was taking yeah, a very the Chinook Cascade and, uh, sure. and which are right. Well, I think of it sorry, the American no Noble hops. I think he I think he did use Centennial and Amarillo in that one. God, that I I you know it, it's such a it, you know it's an overlooked style right now because everyone's looking to IPAs and the various versions of that, and I mean the pale ale to me is such a beautiful style. And I do hope that people will, will will revisit that at some point. But there's an interesting piece that we are now, you know, American brewers started looking at Europe for inspiration. And Europe is now also looking at the United States for inspiration. No, isn't it amazing? The it, tail is wagging the dog. Well, you know, and I love that there is this, you know, cross inspiration. It's not coming one direction, you know, nope. in, in any particular way. It is definitely flowing both ways. And we are both... I would Able. agree. I would agree. Yeah. Like when I started, we looked to England, or in that case, maybe you looked to to Germany. Belgium was came on a little later. You looked for inspiration, but what we ended up creating was something very unique, uniquely American. And now a lot of European uh, younger brewers and newer brewers are are looking to that, and I think they're going to create something uniquely to their area. And we will turn around and probably look to that for inspiration. So yeah, you're right. It it kind of goes back for we're, we're feeding each other. It's, 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 I think that is sort of the, uh, it's the, it's the gestalt of the whole uh, craft brewing industry. It's, it's, it's beautiful. The, the thing I was most impressed about is that he wasn't dialing in his recipe to taste like an oxidated uh, old American IPA. And that is one of the biggest problems uh, yes. that other brewer friends have related to me that, uh, you know, when you have European brewers, they are only <clears throat> tasting American hoppy beers. That are, that after been, after that, they've sat on a boat for four that months. That have taken a yeah. long voyage. Right. Yep. You know, and so, in fact, what they end up mimicking is that like old oxidated flavor of it. And th- thankfully, this was... It'd be like us recreating uh, a Heineken after it's been on the boat. And uh, we used to joke about that. If you want to make a continental lager, um, make a light lager and put it in your trunk for two weeks. And then uh, put it in green bottles and then serve it. 
There, but, you know, it, it's funny, but I mean, that is actually true. I mean, if you look at the, the kind of American brewers approach to Belgian style beers, a lot of what Americans make, you know, in homage, you know, to those Belgian styles is based on those Belgians, those specific Belgian styles that can actually live through, you know, transit over the ocean. And there are plenty of Belgian yeah. styles that are brewed by Belgian brewers that they don't import to the United States because they can't make it over here in that kind of fresh and bright and, way. And yet, and yet there's some beers like, you know, Barrelworks beers, which are aged for a very long time before they ever go into a bottle, and they can age for many years after that. And so, so part of that, as long as they're not left in your trunk of your car... And they keep warm. I mean, if they're kept at 55 degrees, say, um, I mean, they will age beautifully. They will evolve, but they will evolve like a really fine Burgundian wine or uh, or Bordeaux. I mean, they're, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's the beauty. But yes, some of these fresh beers, obviously, you know, it's it's best to have them probably within a month or two. That was a spectacular way to bring it back to Barrel Works, and thank you for that, Jeffers. Speaking (laughs) of Barrel Works, so I, you know, I just popped open this bottle of Reginald Brett. Um, it is a rich wine-like experience. It is, yeah, brown but not a nude brune. It is a ten percent beer, and so there's a very uh, high alcohol content to it, and yet there's a, a very well-placed acidity that's not uh, overwhelming, but that fits within you know that balance of sweetness. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about this beer. So this is, I, I think, this is sort of the quintessential. Uh, Firestone experience. Basically, the base beer for this is a double DBA. Du- a double DBA is no, a... No, that's a beer you guys don't make anymore, is no, it? No, I know. Much but to it, my own chagrin. I still yeah, have, tell me I about it. I have one bottle of that 2014 It ages, it ages DBA beautifully. It's actually cell. one of those beers that actually is something that should age. Um, but this is a double DBA. Double, DBA, double barrel ale, was the very first beer we ever made. So again, we talk about tradition. I mean, and we are steeped in that. Is we love to create these this lineage of beers. So DBA actually uh, has created many different beers. We've created uh, Agrestic with that, which is also from a DBA based beer. Double DBA. We'll get to Agrestic later. We have another um, We have here. about four four different beers that are, are based on that on the original beer that we made when we opened our doors twenty three years ago, I think. But this one is unusual because what we did is, in addition to taking a, a foundational beer, is that we put it through several of our barrel programs. We have three barrel programs. Uh, DBA usually is fermented on American oak. We didn't do that here. We used to do that. Um, but what we did is we took this beer, uh, a double-strength DBA, fermented it in stainless steel, and then we, we, we sent it over to our spirit barrel program, uh, which is a separate building, separate facility, separate story. Um, and it aged in bourbon barrels for about six to eight months. So it picked up all that bourbon character. Then we shipped that beer, we transferred it, and we tri- shipped it to Barrelworks. And then we put it in our, our barrel program where it was introduced to Britannomyces and Lactobacillus. And so now it's picked up that it's got a tartness to it. It has that funky characteristic and this is probably one of the most complex beers that we make. Um, it's got it's, it's got body because it's got that alcohol. Uh, it has that bourbon, uh, kind of a wisp of bourbon to it. It has this citrusy character. This is why I was saying it's like a Manhattan cocktail. There's a, there's a slight bourbon, malty, tart, uh, body. I mean, it's just, it's just one of the most unique beers that we make. 
and we jokingly called it Reginald Brett, and then we looked, we Googled it, and it turns out there really was a Reginald Brett. <coughs> he was a lord or a viscount or something in England, and it turns out he was a, a radical in England. So we thought, that, okay, we can live with that uh, as a name. But yeah, this is um, <coughs> this is the highest alcohol beer that we make at Barrel Works. It's it's a it, it took a while for us to figure out how to bottle it. How how did you bottle it? And and this is the thing. I mean, you know, when you're talking about high how high alcohol environments and refermenting in, in the bottle to bottle condition, like that, that's a serious challenge, so, especially with the level of acidity that's now in this beer. It's it, it's more a, a level is because we bottle condition these, meaning we 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 introduce uh, yeast again and some sugar to bottle condition these and create uh, CO two. So what we have to do, of course, and then they're not filtered. So all the other wild yeast is in there. And Britannomyces is, is quite the scavenger. It will consume just about any carbohydrate it comes in contact with. So what we have to try to do is, is make sure that when we do bottle it, that we've consumed all those fermentable sugars so we don't get overcarbonation in the bottle. Um, this was a particularly challenging beer because it does have some body. It had some... A non-fermentable so we just had to make sure that we it spent enough time in barrels and all that where we could make sure that it was it was uh, what basically when we bottle these is they're basically dry they uh there is not a, le- a high level of of fermentable sugar there so that the brett could start consuming that and overcarbonate it or worse you know blow up a bottle but it took us a while to figure this one out our other beers are usually around five or six, maybe seven percent. Um, we kind of have those dialed in, where we bring them in. Basically, they get uh, bottle conditioned when they're about one plato uh, or below, uh, because that at that point there's really just not a lot of fermentable sugar left, other than what we introduce for uh, bottle conditioning. This one doesn't taste like a one plato beer. I know it's tricky, isn't it? It's it's got it's got some fullness on the palate. Um, that could be uh, the, the the measure of, of alcohol. Um, and, you know, um, again, these are non-filtered. So if there was fermentable sugar there uh, it, over time, that would... Um, and this, I mean, we did this last year, so we would, we would be noticing it by now. So it, uh, we just have to let them... We have to be patient and let them ferment in the, in the barrel. Do you uh, condition your bottling yeast... Uh, to avoid that kind of like terminal shock, acid shock? No, I mean, I'd have to ask Jim about this. I'm not, you know, we, we use a, a, a champagne yeast, okay. DV10. Pretty standard. I mean, basically, we kind of follow the model that a Russian River follows. I yeah. mean, we're good friends with those guys. Sure. So, I mean, I mean, like a lot of breweries, we, we consult with people we, we respect and trust and are friends with. Uh, I mean, uh, New Belgium. Uh, Russian River, and um, we just we kind of we we did some trials and we settled in on uh, this yeast that uh, is more or less alcohol tolerant. Um, it's very clean. It produces a nice fermentation, but it but with one caveat, I have noticed we we keg beer too, but we we force carbonate that. We do not add uh, this this uh, champagne yeast for that. It's just we force carbonate in the tank and then we keg. Um, it's interesting to see these over time because when we bottle condition, we kind of rouse all everything else that's in there. And while there's not a lot of food source there, we we tend to pick up, I think, more rustic character hmm. in those in in the in the uh, bottled beers. 
not to say anything's wrong with a keg beer. In fact, what's really beautiful about that is the keg beers tend to be a little bit more consistent over time because they're kept usually cool about 40 degrees. Right. And whereas the bottle, you know, we don't know how the bottles are, are, are held. I, I, the bottle we're drinking here came out of uh, my personal stash. I store at uh, 55 to 60 degrees. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, it's it's not it's a it's a temperature where you're not going to get a lot of activity, but there's a, a very low level of activity among the yeast. So um, there is some activity, but it's it's very minimal. And I mean, look at the head retention on that. And this is what I love about this is is usually with the wild beers, you're consuming all the protein. There's not a lot of hops in these, so you tend to get these flat beers that look like cider and. Um, um, I mean, trying to maintain a little bit of head retention. We kind of looked at how the Belgians were doing it. It's like, how are they doing it? Well, they, they add all those old hops. And they may not add bitterness, but they add material for hops to cling to and add some head retention to that. So, um, you know, so cheers. So you use some aged hops in this? Uh, we have our own techniques here. I mean, uh, we'll keep that a secret. But, uh, wow, so cagey and Belgian in your uh, I know, we got to do that occasionally, right? <laughs> There's hot material in here, yes. Okay, okay. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. One of one of the things that uh, you are maybe you know well known for within the beer world <laughs> is your Jeffers Drops Acid presentation. <laughs> yeah, this is it's it's a, a presentation on how to sense and how to build a palate for tasting sour beer. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that. It changed the way that I taste sour beer. You know, wow, I'm a, I'm that's a, good to hear. I'm a beer professional, and I've I've, I've worked in this field for six years now. Um, but experiencing your, your Jeffers Drops Acid uh, presentation, I think it was in the basement of Falling Rock a couple of years ago in, in Denver. Three years ago. Three years ago. I was just thinking. We. I, I thought it was two years ago. It was three years ago. Yeah. Um, thank you for that that invitation. But you know, you you have a very specific method of walking through the various acid components: lactic acid, acetic acid, you know, at, at varying concentrations to help people develop and articulate an idea of what those acids taste like, so that they can ultimately then pick those out of finished beer. And be able to, you know, figure out what what those things are. Um, you know, it the thing that changed it for me was that idea of acetic acid being a physical experience and being a place in the back of your throat where yeah. you, where you taste it. And you know, going through that with you and being able to know that when I feel that acid in the back of my throat. That's acetic acid. It's not a taste thing. It's not happening on my. It's a tongue. sensation. It's a you know. It's a specific feel and a specific burn right right there, and it's in a, in a place in my throat like that. That was a very pivotal thing for me and helped me approach sour beer in a different kind of way. Tell me a little bit about how you formulated this idea and how you built <laughs> this education program. Um, you know which. You know, to be honest, every brewery in America should be running for their own, you know, their own uh, staff in order to help educate them about how sour beer can be tasted. Wow, that's a uh, that's a I'm big sorry, question. Sorry if that's too weighty for you. No, but, no, no, uh, it's not weighty. It's I, just there's I a lot of there's a lot of questions in there. Uh, I, I would it's say that important. I yeah. would say it starts with us asking ourselves that question, uh, Jim and I. Um, 
asking questions about the making of our own beer is you know how you know we we, we decided at some point and if you get a bottle of our beer we we put the uh, the titratable acidity the the acid level the lactic acid level on our bottles we just thought that was good information but of course then if we put that on there we realize maybe there we need there's an educational component to that so so these things are in our heads you know for our own pur- purposes you know how do we as blenders at the end of the day when we're sitting there barrel sampling how do we talk to each other we need a common language and that's just that's descriptive analysis it, it's descriptive analysis whether it's we're talking about the the fruit component you know the acid component whatever but the acid component needed something that we could measure um, and so t- titratable acidity was a great way to correlate um, how we taste I mean you can do it give it a numerical equation from zero to whatever and so that's how we when we're blending we we talk about it we we just we can immediately taste beer and say we think that's between a six and a seven and so maybe and usually we're right somewhere in between we're not exact but usually what we're doing is when we blend a beer we have an idea of where we want to go with it and so that helps us get there it's not enough it's too much let's blend in something that has less acid let's blend in something that has more but the idea is to create a level of acid that you that is present knowable that doesn't overwhelm so with that in mind, um, I was asked one time to fill in for Matt Brindelson to, we had a, a busload of 60 uh, um, uh, social media and podcast folks from LA. They wanted to come up. Um, and so I said, fine, you get your way up here. We'll, we'll entertain you. And, and part of that was Matt was going to talk about hops and he couldn't make it. And he said, Jeffers, can you fill in for me? And I said, okay, yeah, sure. And then I started to brood over it. And I thought, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like a physician who hasn't practiced in a while. Hops are not my game. Acid is my game. And, um, you know, I'm not really, I don't feel like I can talk about hops, but I'd be like, you know, from, from, you know, 10,000 years ago. So I thought, I said, hey, what would you think about me doing something on acid? It's kind of closer to what we're doing. They said, and, and, the, and, and it was Gemma. Gemma's like, yeah, that's, uh, that sounds this is Gemma Wilson, your yes. social media. Yeah, she yeah. was putting this on. She was in charge. She goes, yeah, that sounds great. And so I put together a class and I talked to Jim Crooks, our, our, our barrel guy, our barrel guru, uh, my partner on this. And we, we, we designed a class. And it was like, I had the basic idea for it. And then again, it was just like making a beer. He came in and said, hey, I, you know, we could do this, this, and this. I was like, fantastic. So I went back and said, hey, I'm going to do this thing on acid. And uh, it's going to be a little different, but it'll, it'll help people understand our beers. And Gemma said, well, um, what do you want to call it? And I just, just riffed. I said, how about Jeffers Drops Acid Knowledge? And she said, Oh, that's a that's fantastic. What is what does David Walker think? David Walker being our owner of our brewery, and I said, don't tell him. <laughs> I said it's you know if he finds out about it, he'll be fine. If we ask him ahead of time, he'll find he'll find reasons that it, it, maybe we shouldn't do it. So we just did it, and and it and it was a little crude at that point, but basically the whole idea was to to uh, to let people understand acid mainly, as you pointed out. Uh, lactic and acetic acid, which are the main acids you will find in in, in sour beers. There are other ones, uh, but these are the two main components. And you know, we have a preference for lactic acid. We think a little bit of acetic acid is a good thing, but too much is not. 
And as you pointed out, acetic acid is a volatile acid. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can feel it on the back of your palate. You can feel it in your stomach. It tends to fill you up. It's something that we think is a little bit goes a long way. Whereas lactic acid is much cleaner. And so we tend to have a preference. So we built this class to educate people on what acid is, the different types of acid, and then to taste through beers and give people an opportunity to estimate that acidity level. And believe it or not, which, what, what I love about this is people coming in completely cold turkey, uh, having, ha- having giving them samples of water that have acid levels as, as references, and then bringing the beer is it's how close people get to what the actual acid level is. So people pick it up pretty quickly. So if people want to, you know, if other brewers want to try this at home and, you know, kind of balance and, and test, uh, you know, their own uh, sensitivity to these kinds of acids, uh, can they do this? And how, how do they do this? You know, walk, walk it's me a, through some of the It's a little harder this. because you need a reference point, right? I mean, sure. we all need a reference point, what a zero is and what, a, say, a 10 is. So that's what we do in this class is I reference, I, I create kind of create the, the goalposts for this. And then we bring beers so people have a reference point. So I'm not sure how you at home you could do a reference point um, other than if somebody states an acidic uh, a TA level on their bottle, you can use that as a reference point. Well, you know, I think the, the, the basic of it is that, you know, if you want to sense acetic acid, that's, that's a really simple one to taste because you just buy vinegar. Right, you and know? and you'll know you can smell and, it, and, and so straight straight vinegar. So, so straight, the the, the, the great thing with acetic acid is you could just get white vinegar if you right. want to get away, but you could get anything. But white vinegar is pretty straightforward. Um, you can smell it. Most acids, there's only a handful of, of volatile acids, and acetic acid or vinegar is one of them. Um, and again, this is you know coming from our wine experience, wineries are terrified of volatile acids because they actually have legal limits in which they can yeah. use. And so if you go over that legal limit, your wine just became a vinegar and it went from $19 a bottle to uh, 99 cents a bottle. Right. I mean, you just, you, just, you, you just sold the farm. So they're very concerned about that. And coming out of wine industry, we, you know, we, we have these people we can talk to to come up with a way to measure this and to, and to understand it. Uh, small levels of acetic acid, I mean, really low levels actually add palate fullness and brightness sure. to a beer. But you don't really want to smell it. And you don't really want to feel that itchy, kind of scratchy feeling on the back of that. You just want to have a sense of, of, of palate fullness or, or mouthfeel. Um, but yeah, if you go in and just open up a bottle of vinegar, you can smell it. If you no, took, I think, if you I took think a teaspoon yeah. and, 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 and tasted it, you'll know that it's pretty, it's, 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 it's very uh, identifiable. And as it goes down your palate, it will warm the esophagus. Now, your best practice might be to uh, measure it out into distilled water in a percentage that might be somewhere close to to, to Yeah, beer. you could do that. I mean, just so that you're sensing and, and it at you a level. And even that, if you don't know what that is in terms of parts per million, all that, yeah. th- that's not the main thing. If you did so, if you did just water and then like one teaspoon, or you know, if you have some sort of measuring, you could come up with your own way of measuring that, and then. And then what I would do is then go pick a beer that represents that. I mean, go go drink a Duchess de Borgogna, which is like the poster child for a beer that exhibits both lactic and acetic acid. And then the oxidated 
oxidative uh, 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 attribute of that, which is uh, ethyl acetate. I mean, those are all things that happen. Oh, ethyl acetate is that na- uh, that that paint thinner and nail polish remover characteristic, which comes from acetic a- acetic acid later on when it oxid when it when it when it when it goes further down the down the line. And um, um, Duchess Borgonia portrays that. And this is no diss on, on on that beer. It's a beer that's been made for four hundred years. It's a style, um, but it tends to exhibit. I mean, like in your face, some of these uh, these these characteristics, and uh, one that might be more subtle would be Rodenbach, a Grand Cru, where so if you if you taste vinegar and then you go try these beers, I think you're going to notice that characteristic, and then as you go off and try beers in your community, you might uh, if you don't pick it up, then it's not there. Um, I, I've always said that you know when you go to a sour festival, if you really need Tums, it's because you've been probably drinking a lot of acetic acid. Not a lot of lactic acid. Now, another part of this, uh, you know, presentation that you do is tasting lactic acid in varying concentrations. Yeah. Um, you know, to, to try to, you know, uh, convey that same experience, you know, to our own staff and uh, mm-hmm. and other folks. You know, we've gone out and bought 88% lactic acid solution, which you can buy at, you know, most homebrew shops. I was going to ask or, you, where do you get this stuff? Oh. I get it from a, you know, a lab... Uh, no, no. I mean, you know, any homebrew supply store is generally going to have lactic. I mean, it's something that brewers will, will routinely use to lower the pH of their mash or or whatnot. And so, you know, it's readily available. And if you figure out eighty eight percent lactic solution, you can you know do the math and figure out how to get certain titratable acidity levels. Right. You know, with distilled water and uh, and create those kinds of blends, and then taste those kinds of blends of that lactic at you know those varying acidity levels and get a sense for what that ta means in pure terms without you know some of the other effects of of beer itself um you know just just to understand what what that acidity means uh, you know in a pure sense we've definitely i've done that you know for myself and to, to also share to others because you're not always available to give this presentation out to people. <laughs> well, you know, I always tell people when I'm doing this class, and we're going to do it tomorrow uh, for uh, one of our distributors. Um, that'll be interesting. But um, usually, I do it for a very—it's a very geek-centric crowd, um, people who are really you know passionate about it and they're looking for knowledge and education. Uh, it's going to be interesting doing this for our distributor, where. Um, that, you know that 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 may not be the uh, the same <laughs> content, but but anyway, what I always tell people, as I said, nowhere is anybody probably ever going to give you water and acid samples, and nobody n- and never should you ever come across this. It's not a natural thing to be drinking water and lactic acid, but I do that just so, to make it. A, I mean, I do this for my class so you get a pure sense of what it tastes like. <clears throat> then we go to beer where you're bombarded by CO2 and you're bombarded by malt and anything else that's going and and, and all these other uh, contributions where you have to kind of, your brain has to differentiate that. Um, But usually if it's in a high enough concentration, it's not a big, it's not difficult. Um, So I, you know, you, you could, in terms of acetic acid, you can get that at a chain store I mean, you you probably have to go. It's a little more specialized to find lactic acid, but you could certainly find some concentrations there. And then the the more important thing there is to get away from those. Those are just to kind of train you. 
get into the, some real beers, uh, not only just like some some known brands, but then start trying some 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 breweries in your area and just figure out what level is acceptable to you. I mean, some everyone has a different acid level that they appreciate. Well, and, and when you say that that level mm-hmm. that accept, that is acceptable to you, I think then we get into the other <clears throat> element of that that the experiment experience of beer that people have is not simply based on the level of acid because that level of acid is also uh, balanced out by any residual body or sweetness or sugar that may be left in that beer. It is also balanced out by other bitterness that might be left in that beer. I hope so. And and you know any other and any kind of fruit character that might be in that beer, um, you know, and simply you know from a psychological perspective, that presence of a fruit flavor actually validates you know some sense of acidity because we do associate those things you know with our uh, with each other and our palates because you know most fruit is acidic in that kind of way yeah and so all of those things work together in as you said before a gestalt kind of way you know to produce what we ultimately experience in terms of acidity true and i and i think there's there is a to me personally a dividing line some people may disagree with me but I mean, I, I think we can differentiate. I mean, we have this term that we use for sour beers. And I've never been a fan of that because we lop in, we lump in beers that maybe not are sour, like Orval, into that category because it uses Britannomyces. And Britannomyces tends not to produce a lot of acidity. Lactic, lactobacillus does. And acetic acid does. But we lump these things in so we have this assumption that beer should be, ass, be, be sour. And I think the beer style that's coming in these days that really truly meets that definition is probably the kettle sour. And a kettle sour truly is, an ex- I think, is, is a way for breweries that don't have the luxury of having a separate facility to produce lactic acid in their brew house in a way that, that it limits the risk of contamination and uh, I mean, because they do it in the kettle and then they boil it. So they basically annihilate any of the bacteria and they can move forward with that. But what they're really doing is just producing lactic acid. Those beers are very refreshing. They're tart, but they don't have a lot of body or complexity. Um, those beers that are complex come from that time in barrels, uh, which produces uh, oak component, which also where we get the Britannomyces component and the lactic acid component. And those beers are uh, definitely produce more complexity and more flavor profile on a broader spectrum. Uh, and so we haven't come to this where we've really differentiated that. But I think it's important at some point as we get into this that that is an important distinction between beers that are just strictly sour and beers that have some acidity, but they also have bread, they have wood component and things like that. And having said that, I totally forgot the, the question you were answering. <laughs> You know, there there is certainly you know pricing differences and you know production differences between a beer that spends forty eight hours kettle souring in the in versus forty eight months versus uh, or yeah. or twelve months or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and, and so I mean, obviously there's a pricing differential, but there's also a flavor. And not to take anything away from kettle sours, they're very refreshing. Um, they're bright. They're I mean, but they're not. I I I you know when I drink a kettle sour, I know it's a kettle sour. Sure. It, it's 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 about lactic acid. It truly is. That is the that is the main feature there. When you when you're drinking a beer, 
um, that exhibits oak characteristic, Brett characteristic, uh, uh, lactic acid characteristic. It's going to be a bit more broader, and there's there's more flavor components. I mean, think of Guz. Think of a Belgian Guz. They really are complex beers, and they take two to four years to make. And um, if there was a way to shorten that, I'm sure somebody would figure that out. But um, in t- you know, in terms of acidity, you know, I think can we did this with the hoppy beers, where we went west coast and we you know everyone kind of chest thumped about how their beer went to eleven. And we got really bitter. And, 1,000 IBUs. Yeah, you know, whatever. You know, even though, you know, probably the palate couldn't pick up any more than 70. But that has come back, you know. And now we have a trend with the hazy IPAs that might not even have IBU levels that would meet a pale ale level. Um, so there's this pendulum swing. And I think the same thing hap- is happening with the wild sours is, is when these first get launched, everyone goes right to the edge. That's, that's that craft beer, what we talked about, that American kind of ingenuity. Let's be creative. Let's see how far we can go with this. And eventually we go too far and we bring it back. And I think what I'm seeing generally is that uh, acid levels are, are coming down. I think that's a good thing. If you if you go to Belgium or if you get a chance to try Belgian beer, you'll realize the acidity isn't the main point. The acidity is a component of, of that beer. And the people who drink these beers don't drink two ounces at a bottle share. They drink 10 ounces or whatever it is in metric um, or whatever because they're drinking it with food. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not it's something to test and put on, on WhatsApp. It's something they consume as part of their daily routine. Um, eating, drinking, and, all, and and what have you. Those are that's a really good point. And you know, it was a beautiful experience sitting at Grotorst in uh, yeah Einsringen and watching old Belgians just you know drink goods because that's just what they enjoyed to drink on a Sunday afternoon. Do you realize Jamie has a pretty tough life here? Yeah, it, it just. It, 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 <laughs> I do it for science, Jeffers. Um, it's work, you know. Uh, you know, but uh, you know, but having having said that, um, you know, I think what you said is right that there are some interesting uh, differences in American approaches to sour beer, and in particular, what I've found, and I and and that this is uh, an opinion that's conditioned by talking to sour beer makers. They, there is a West coast approach to sour beer that is very much, you know, similar, as you say, to that West coast approach to IBU that if we're going to make sour beer, it has to be the most sour, the most assaulting, the most intense. And it has to be about being able to endure the most acid component in your beer possible and you know even from a maker perspective i've talked to a number of brewers who are like i wish i could make more subtle and balanced sour beer and yet what my audience those people that buy my beer want to drink is more intensely acidic because they feel that that is you know that is somehow a measure of who they are as beer drinkers and so for you as somebody that makes and sells that kind of sour beer how do you balance what that audience expects and the, the art of building that balance into your beer itself? Yeah, you know, it, it, and that is a uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, ultimately, we have to uh, be happy with you know we have to 
there's the one half, which is we want to make what we want to make as artists, as, 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 as beer makers. And then there, on the other side of that is we're not philanthropic. We are selling beer. So we have to make sure that we're making beer that people will, will purchase. So there's the, the, those, sometimes those, those things, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a constant battle towards equilibrium on that one. And, you know, lately what we realize is I think we've gone through the make it more sour phase. I, a lot of breweries that I'm familiar with are, are toning down their bitterness. I mean, their, excuse me, their, their acidity. And I was at a brewery today where we talked about a similar issue is when your uh, lactic acid in your environment becomes more comfortable, whether, you know, your barrels, it starts to just produce a lot of lactic acid. So your acid levels start to go up. And if you don't want your beer to go up, you have to figure out how to blend that out. It's just one of those things. It's, it's just one of these things, these challenges that we work with, with these wild yeast and, and, and uh, bacteria. Um, but ultimately, we like, you know, our philosophy towards that is we make what we like to make, but we're not so out of it that we're not going to make something that we don't think people are going to enjoy. One of the things that we've had to adapt to is, is our audience wants more beers that are fermented with fruit. We personally tend to like the more rustic beers, the more goods like the lambic style beers. That's, you know, when we, at the end of the day, that's what we want to drink. But we recognize that people like beers that, uh, that are fermented with fruit. So we, we produce a lot of beers that are fermented with fruit. And it's not that we don't like them. We love them. It's just that our preference is more towards these more rustic, straight up beers because we because for us we get to pick up what the barrel's doing we pick up what the what the wild yeast is doing when you add fruit it it's another dimension that's one more thing that you kind of have to uh, work with but it's also one more exciting thing to you know to add a, an element to your beer so you know it, it's 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 an evolving process it's not static um, what we made four years ago and sold in two seconds is not what we're making today. Um, those beers are people like, oh, I've had that before. And so we will uh, continuously evolve. And, and one of the things that we do is, which makes it interesting for us, is instead of making the same beer month in, month out, which we de- we've never done at Barrel Works, we make it usually once a year and then we come back and make it the next year, is we're not doing that anymore, is we're making new beers. And so typically we're making new beers with, with where we're fermenting fruit and or doing something that's just unusual. And that's how we, we do something that keeps our creative juices going, but also is satisfying our, our clientele in terms of what they're looking for. So for these beers that take two years to come to fruition, how do you guess two years in the future as to what people are going to want? Uh, you know, roll the dice, man. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's not, it, it's usually a year. Uh, I mean, it's you know, you 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 pointed out one of our issues. It's sort of the issues that that the I, I remember taking an economics class when I was in college, and and they used a reference to a static uh, uh, supply curve and a dynamic di- demand curve was uh, coffee and whiskey, mainly uh, Scotch whiskey. Is that it takes years to make those products, whether you're growing the tree or you're producing the whiskey. You can't, you have no idea what demand's going to be in five years. You just have to go for it. 
And while we don't have that long of a period, ours is one year to two year, it's still a little difficult in that we have to have an idea of what, and again, we kind of, we, you know, we, we, we don't put our finger in the air going, what do people want? We kind of look at what, what interests us in what we're doing. And then we say, well, is this really out there? Or is this something we think people, uh, you know, in terms of trends and all that, are, are, are people are comfortable with? It's a secondary condition, but it's still a condition. Um, but ultimately, um, it's, it's, it's really two to three people sitting in a room saying, you know what, I've really wanted to work with, you know, I mean, I've literally had a conversation where it's like, you know, I really want to ferment a beer in the hollow of a tree trunk. It's like, well, that's an interesting idea. Can we make enough to sell to, uh, you know, can we, can we produce, you know, 2000 cases of that? No. Okay. Let's move on. (laughs) No, actually it's not move on. Let's do that on a small level and see how it goes. But I mean, we have those, you know, I mean, we have those kind of esoteric conversations, but ultimately, can we produce enough to satisfy our clientele? And and we're not huge. I mean, we, we Barrel Works will probably produce somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 barrels this year. That's small. It's especially small considering that Firestone Walker is, what, over 300,000 barrels of total production right I'd now? I'd say over 400,000. Over 400,000. Um. Um, which which still you know from a from a so you are one four hundredth yes Firestone we are and, and I'm reminded of that every time because my job is to scream and yell and advocate for Barrelworks and 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 I'm always referred to, I'm always told in an English accent Jeffos just remind you that you're only one percent of production Barrelworks keeps us in touch with our roots where we came from our barrels because we started brewing beer in barrels when we were making eight hundred barrels a year. It keeps us in touch with 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 tradition, and it keeps us in touch with our creative uh, style. So it's small. I always refer to it as the mouse that roars. I mean, Barrelworks is the mouse that roars. It's an important function of Firestone Walker. It's a uh, it's it's a it's a very important story to tell. Um, even though it's small in terms of volume, it's huge in terms of who we are. Um, and you know. Uh, I sometimes have to remind our uh, our marketing people of that. <laughs> well, Jeffers, <clears throat> thanks for joining me on the podcast today. A I, pleasure. I appreciate your perspective on this. Uh, keep making the beers that you and Jim have crazy ideas to make because they're delicious and I enjoy them all. So next up is the hummus and pita chip beer. I'm joking. but uh, um, <laughs> What's your wife going to say about that? <laughs> it depends on what I put in it, Just right? Just don't call it hummus. Yeah, right. Exactly. Touche. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. Can't wait to see it at uh, the Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Festival next year. Hopefully we'll see you before that, but yes. Probably. Probably the Great American Beer Festival before that. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe another occasion. We'll, we'll find out. Awesome. Um, If you've enjoyed listening to this uh, episode of the podcast, I really hope you'd subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. And if you enjoy uh, this and other stories, then please subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine where you can learn more about all of the fantastic beer that Jeffers and all the other folks at Firestone Walker make specifically for you. Until next time, we'll see you next week. Uh, Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. 
This episode has been brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, the country's only not-for-profit membership organization dedicated to promoting the community of homebrewers and empowering homebrewers to make the best beer in the world. Brew with the AHA at homebrewersassociation.org. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrewing.